following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Picking up in this New Year's time with a series of messages on the life of David, the man after God's own heart. We broke off a few Sundays ago for Christmas, but come back now to pick up the life and career and ups and downs and ins and outs of a man of God whose life is very fully documented. And today, as other times, I'm not preaching on really just a few verses, but on things that span several chapters. You would Do well if you wish to follow up by reading chapters 18 through 20, at least, of 1 Samuel. I'm going to just read for you the very beginning of chapter 18 and then a section in chapter 20 that is more or less a snapshot of the beginning of and somewhat the end of the great friendship, one of the Bible's great friendships, that of David and Jonathan. So listen, first of all, as I read 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 5. This is immediately after the time that Goliath had been killed and David was interviewed by King Saul with his son Jonathan present. We read, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and bow and belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also the sight of Saul's servants. Well, then we have a a tale moving through 18 and all of 19 of, of Saul's raging jealousy, throwing a spear at David one moment and then the next moment saying, sing to me, calm my spirit, David. Very schizophrenic relationship there with Saul. But In chapter 20, after the ups and downs of that, and Jonathan and David have talked about many things, we come to chapter 20 and verse 12. Listen as I read there. Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose that to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. 
And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And then this final word at the end of that chapter, verse 42. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. He rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is God's holy word. I think it's already almost 25 years that I can hardly believe it that our family discovered a very delightful, family-friendly miniseries. If you can find it on video, I urge you to find it, Anne of Green Gables. Not only my daughter, but all of us loved the older novel. It, it comes from quite a few years ago, but was made into a video series about a girl in Prince Edward Island, Canada, who in the early 20th century came to be adopted by an elderly couple, thinking they were going to get a boy to work on the farm. They got a girl by mistake, and Anne proved to be just a delightful presence in their lives and the life of her community. And one of her driving desires that she spoke about as an orphan, remember, somebody who didn't have a family, was to find her kindred spirit. If you're familiar with Anne of Green Gables, you know she always talked about her kindred spirit. Well, she found this spirit in a girl named Diana Berry and enlightened the lives and became the friend of many. We find that a friend is a select person who knows you inside and out. A person who comes as an antidote to that great ill of loneliness, one of the worst ills of human existence, really. When you think back that God had no sooner created man and he said it is not good that the man be alone. It's not good that any of us be alone in this world. The human spirit longs for authentic companionship and friendship, much the same as we long for our bodies to be fed and, and have air and, and water and the good basics of life. A friend is someone who meets that need, someone who comes into our life with unconditional acceptance and brings us fellowship. You're fortunate if you have a handful of really deep, authentic friendships in your life. You might say, well, I have dozens of friends, and that may be true at some level, but not many people have dozens of true kindred spirits. That person to whom you can always go, the person that you would call in the middle of the night if a tragedy came and someone had to go with you to face the police or something like that or, or, or deal with a tragedy, who would that person be? Who would the person be that they would never say, oh, you're disturbing me, don't bother me at such an hour? Friendship is a rare thing, and we need to cultivate it when we find it. Friendship is an important theme in the Bible. You think of Ruth, who was related by marriage to Naomi, but nevertheless went way beyond the requirements of that normal relationship to befriend Naomi and be loyal to her. You think of Paul speaking with such affection about those younger apostles who worked with him, particularly Timothy, but others as well. 
You think of Jesus himself with his 12 disciples and with those like Lazarus and Martha and Mary whose home was a a refuge for him. He needed friends in his human frame. The book of Proverbs 27 verse 9 says, Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, but so does the pleasantness of a friend springing from his earnest counsel. Young David, the son of Jesse, needed a friend really badly because he had a king for an enemy. And while his praises were being sung by hundreds of fellow citizens for his military accomplishments, not just the death of Goliath, but all the victories over other Philistines, here was Saul going from one mood to the other, black to white, one day to the next, never predictable whether he would thrust a spear at David or say, sing to me, calm me. How do you deal with such a person? And wonder of wonders, the friend became the son of that same king, Jonathan, the prince of Israel, the one who would be the natural heir to become king who David was displacing just about the least likely person you would ever think would be David's friend, would be the one who would be denied the office of king himself someday because of God's plan for David. I think it comes as a shock to us if we, if we were really honest with ourselves individually that everybody is not our friend. Does that shock you? that there are people at your work that you just can't get along with really well. You don't seem to speak the same language or have the same habits or values. There are people that there just seems to be an edge to your relationship no matter what you do. I was told some about third-hand accounting of something said about me by another person that was very sarcastic and and very critical, and I would think to myself, my, I'll tell you, I'm, I hope I'm honest enough to be able to say, how could he think that about me? I'm such a lovable person. But I'm not lovable to everybody. I said the folks in the, the first service, I, you know, pe- people say, Rogers, you're intimidating. I think it's the black robe. But, uh, you know, I think I'm a teddy bear, and I don't understand. Why, why would they think I'm intimidating? Why would they want to criticize me? But but that's the world, isn't it? Everybody's not going to love us. Everybody's not going to be our friend. And much of our spiritual development comes from learning to handle the enmity of others, just as David had to deal with the enmity of Saul. And one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways you deal with that enmity by some people is having certain others who show you unconditional acceptance an unconditional loyalty and friendship. Now, the full story of David and Jonathan's friendship really would consume quite a bit here, but I do remind you, chapters 18 through 20 tell the the main gist of it. You might want to read those for yourself. Let me just give you the capsule summary. We read there at the beginning of 18 how Jonathan came to David and, and formally covenanted with him. I want your friendship. I am going to be loyal to you and recognize you as the next king. And then he was sort of a go-between between David and Saul throughout the next couple chapters. While Saul was raging, Jonathan was trying to, to uh, mediate and pacify, but basically unsuccessfully. And he finally had to come and tell David, look, 
dad isn't going to change in so many words. He doesn't say that, but, but that's what he's saying. My father is not going to accept you. You're going to have to escape for your safety. And they make this final pledge to one another of loyalty for life and have a very emotional parting after which they never saw each other again on the earth after that parting in chapter 20. Well, the first thing I want to say today is a really short point, and I will not dwell on it, but I think we have to say in light of our day today what this great friendship was not, categorically not, based upon. It was not, first of all, an emotional attraction by a weak person towards a strong one because Jonathan was not weak. He was a warrior in his own right. Everything that David was on the battlefield, Jonathan had already proven to be. He and a single armor bearer had gone out and defeated dozens of Philistines and brought a panic in their camp, just two of them. And he too was a godly man like David, a man who really respected and looked for the honor of the Lord and in his life and was much more a man of faith than his father. So this was was not somebody that said, well, I need somebody to strong to protect me because I'm weak. Not at all. But the real thing we have to say that this friendship is not is to deny that there is any kind of same-sex homosexual attraction between these two men. Now, some of you say, well, why do you even speak of that? Well, I speak of it because there are plenty of people today who would go to this passage and say, you want a great example of a homosexual relationship in the Bible, David and Jonathan. Absolutely not. Absolutely false. We know that the Scripture teaches that sexual intimacy belongs within heterosexual marriage from the Seventh Commandment on through many other texts and many explicit denials that homosexual acts and intimacy is against the will of God. Oh, but folks will say, but look at these men. They embraced each other. They kissed each other. It said they loved each other. What else can it be? Well, what it can be is a very pure level of manly friendship that many people can't even seem to be able to imagine in our day. And let us just ask the question, how could we have an Old Testament that denies the legitimacy of a homosexual action or relationship based on such action and then glamorize a friendship that was based on that? The the Scripture would be speaking out of two sides of its mouth, and it doesn't do that. We do speak for and care for people who struggle with same-sex attraction. We're trying to speak with a clear voice in this, even though the world won't hear us. Our perverted culture says you either accept us and say God made us as we are or forget about it, you're a bigot. We say God didn't make you that way. There's hope for you in Christ. There's redemption for you in Christ. And we are not going to turn our backs on you while we try to show you how to discover that. Well, I want to move away from that, but this great friendship was not based on that. What was it based on that? In the second place, although men often have more difficulty forming authentic friendships, it's kind of documented, guys, that we're a little more reticent about really becoming friends quite as freely as women are. We don't open up as easily. We tend to be much more competitive. We might have a friend, and yet we're really in a competition with him sometimes. 
But 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20 teach us that the foundation for deep friendship is a covenant before God, an agreement that God is the glue that binds this man to another man. And ladies, everything I'm saying applies to women having friendships just the same. Every week I meet a sort of a sacred hour on our schedule this Thursday morning at 8.30. The other four pastors meet with me. We all have an agreement. You try to not have obligations for Thursday morning. By the way, every Christian school in the county has their pastor's open house on Thursday morning. And we tell them all, sorry, folks, we have a prior obligation. Because we meet together for an hour. We talk about practical matters of the ministry, difficulties going on, things that one of us knows that the others need to know, and so on. But a lot of what we're talking about is how are you doing? And how can we pray for each other? And then we do pray for each other. We pray for you too, by the way. We pray through the membership directory in that hour, a couple pages at least. And that is a time that's very important. It binds us together as men and as pastors. We have another fellowship that meets in this building once a month where a larger number of pastors, mostly from Lancaster County, one or two from York, come with their bag lunch, and we sit down, pretty informal agenda. We, we talk about our lives, but, but one of us keeps things in order enough to say, okay, each of us, two, three minutes, what's going on in your life? What do you need prayer for? And then we stop and pray for each other. Let me tell you what a tremendously strengthening thing that is. Not all of those men are necessarily my best, most intimate friends, but they are an enactment of Proverbs 27 that says, iron sharpens iron, and so does one man sharpen another. The covenant part is more implicit in our relationships, not quite as formal as what Jonathan did in his pledge to David. But there's that implicit thing when we say to one another, your life is important to me, it's important before God, you can be honest with me, I will not go out and blab everything you tell me, and I will be concerned to pray for you to realize what God wants to do in your life. One of the men who shares in that larger pastoral fellowship, you don't have to try to think who he is, I doubt any of you would, but he went through a, a crisis time in his life a few years ago, and he, he had been someone I had met with and prayed with for years, and he told us after he went through that time, he was just really open sharing, and he said, men, I realize that in this little group might be my finest friends on the earth. And you all have sustained me before the Lord. You have told me the truth of things I had to hear about myself. And I know that you have not and will not forsake me. Boy, that meant a lot. That was like a statement of the covenant that maybe we had all just implied together for years. And I'll tell you this too. I've observed, and this is certainly true of men in ministry, but I think it's true, period, for all men and all women, perhaps for that matter, that men in ministry who have the moral smash-ups and whose, whose life becomes somewhere along the line like a train going off the rails are almost always the men who were isolated, who didn't have brothers sharing their lives this way. Well, look at the deliberate covenant here that David and Jonathan have. 18.3 to 4 tells of it. Jonathan took off his robe, gave it to David along with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. 
the symbolism here is obvious. The prince of Israel took everything that betokened that he was a prince, that he was the heir to the throne, and gave it to David. What was he saying? You're the next king. I recognize that God has anointed you, that this is what he wants. I don't contest his plan. I'm part of the plan. I, as prince, recognize you as a nobody to be God's leader and my friend, I hope. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. Jonathan was giving up a lot here. He could have fought, you see. He was a man of arms. He could have said, David, I I don't like this plan I've heard about. I challenge you. Let's go out and, and fight it out and see which one of us is left standing alive and he can be the next king. Nothing like that. He said, I have perceived the plan of God and I'm on board with it. I go along with a biblical covenant, which is a firm promise to do good for you and hope you will do likewise good for me. And we know that covenants in the Scripture, we could talk a long time about covenants, they are basically God's own fundamental promise of grace to break into our lives and do for us the good eternally and materially now that we don't deserve to forgive our sins, to give us eternal life to lead us through a destiny of difficulty and bring us victorious in spirit, if not in body, to lead us to realize the things that he has planned for our eventual glory. Now, you notice that Jonathan, as I said, didn't have anything to, to gain by this. In fact, he had everything to lose. He was giving up his claim to the next, be the next king. And yet here in chapter 20, verse 14, he He told David something where he really becomes rather prophetic. Jonathan said, please, David, show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord. Kindness that is merciful, kindness that is caring and compassionate. And don't ever cut off your kindness from my family. It seems that Jonathan was realizing that he possibly would not, and he did not survive David, but his children would. You know what the usual plan was in the ancient world? If you've studied ancient history, you, you don't, it, it isn't even Israel where this happens so much. It's just generally. New king comes in, new tyrant, new dictator. What does he do? Exterminate all the living sons, especially, of the previous leader so you won't have anyone to contest your rule or your power. That was a common practice. Jonathan was seeing the fact that his children, and we're going to come to this Lord willing, a few weeks, it's going to be more like six weeks, I think, from now, one vivid example of how David lived out this covenant to Jonathan's heirs. He remembered the covenant even beyond the life of his friend Jonathan. This is a sacred friendship. How many of us have friendships like this? It may be that you're taking a sad inventory in your mind and thinking, I don't think I have a friend as good as that. I hope you have a few. I hope you have that Christian person you can turn to and and ask for prayer or ask for wisdom or biblical advice. Maybe the beginning of a new year is a good time to review. Who are your friends? Who do you really count on like this? And what are you doing to cultivate those friendships and keep them alive? You know, it's easy to neglect them if the person lives in another state. I became close friends with a man at Houghton College who 
went to the same seminary with me, and it was just amazing. We just drew together. We had many things in common, and we have, believe it or not, we still write letters. We've, actually, we've never sent each other an email. I can't really explain why that is. It's just that ours is kind of an old-fashioned relationship. We write to each other. And, and it used to be a lot more frequent, but we still write six, eight times a year and say, here's what's going on. Hey, pray for me in this. And believe me, that's a man I'm going to call if I'm in trouble or if I need something. You know, I want to say something to young people who might be here today. We have some of our college students around, I think, who haven't gone back yet. But, and this applies, too, to high schoolers and others. Beware of what I would call the accidental friendship, the circumstantial friendship. What do I mean by that? Too many young people, I think, tend to fall in with or hang out with those that circumstances puts them with in the college dormitory or in the fraternity or in the class or something, uh, some activity you're involved in, somebody that's got your major and shows up in a lot of classes. And, oh, a friend. Well, maybe that is a friend. I'm not saying it's not. But beware of, of those friendships that are just there. It may be that you need to seek out this friend of your soul, this Christian friend who's really going to share your values, share your love of the Lord, share your desire to know God's Word, who could actually pray for you. You know, you don't always find those people just standing on the street corner waiting for you to approach them. You often have to seek them out. You have to go to places of worship and Bible studies and places where they're going to be found. I would encourage you, young people, give some thought to and prayer to, do I have a spiritually bonded friend in my life who isn't just the sweet maid or the guy across the hall or, or the girl who was my roommate last year? You need to seek these people. We do need and will have friends who are not Christians. Those are good, legitimate friendships. In fact, those are more the one-way friendship where you're going to be the one giving benefit, perhaps, leading, giving your wisdom, giving your experience, your prayer to somebody who's still struggling spiritually or maybe isn't even interested in spiritual things. You can have those friendships, of course, but those shouldn't be all your friendships. Your real covenant bonds belong to fellow believers. You see in this how David's soul and Jonathan's soul were resonating one with the other. It was a spiritual bond. They worshiped the same true God, and they stimulated each other to seek God because of those common ties. A friend of the soul is somebody who will sacrifice for you, someone who will defend you, someone who will be honest with you about yourself, maybe tell you things you don't even necessarily want to hear, but they will tell you because they care for you. And there's someone who will bring you encouragement and stand by you. Maybe January is a good time to take stock of spiritual friendships. Think about a phone call that might be overdue. Maybe you say, well, I'm, I'm doing okay. I don't really need to pour myself out to anybody. But hey, if that friendship is there and has been there for years, who knows, maybe that person needs you. And the mere word of, I was just thinking of you and wondering how you were doing, would be a welcome thing for you to consider. We can't leave this subject this morning in the last place without being reminded that the gospel of Christ 
is printed in bold print over this friendship. Many scripture authors would say that Jonathan acts as what we call a type of Christ, a model for what Christ became, because Christ's eternal friendship with every humble believer represents the greatest covenant there is. And Jonathan, here he is, someone high who lowered himself, foreshadowing exactly what the crown prince of heaven did. Jesus, who was the high person, took notice of me. Why would he take notice of me? I have no idea. But he did. Me and all my unworthiness. And he said, I will be to you everything that will bind you to God. I will take off my robe of perfect righteousness and put it around your shoulders as a a needy, ruined, repentant man and lead you to my God and Father. There are hundreds and thousands of reasons why Jesus should have dismissed the possibility of relationship with me as a completely unworthy person. And Romans says, while we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling against him, he died for us. There's a great verse that prophesies in the book of Proverbs. You may think Proverbs is all about just wisdom sayings. Here's a prophecy in Proverbs 18.24 when it says, there is a friend who sticks closer than any brother. And if you were reading Proverbs as an Old Testament person in ignorance and said, I wonder who that is, you'd need the rest of the Bible to find out. Because in the New Testament, in Christmas, he's revealed the son of the highest who came to be the friend of needy, ruined persons. The same Jesus who said, greater love has no man than this, that he would give his life for his friends. And then he said, and I have called you my friends. The covenant between Jonathan and David is a great one. It didn't last a long time. They they only had a matter apparently of months to really see this relationship thrive. But it was a friendship that good as it was, great as it was, it pales in comparison to the friendship of Christ for every sinful, repentant man or woman who seeks him as Lord. At the end of 1 Samuel 20, we read there how David had to tear himself away from Jonathan. Both men were weeping. They were very emotional. But we will never need to tear ourselves away from the friend who sticks closer than any brother because an everlasting bond of covenant written in blood by Jesus Christ says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And we can know that once we are truly his, we cannot be severed from the greatest friend that our soul can possibly know. Our Father, I thank you. I know there must be hearing me people who say, I'm not very sure about my friendships. If I have them, they're few in number, and they haven't even always been loyal. There are others who say, thank you, Lord, for the wonderful friends you put in my life. Will you help us to seek out and cultivate those who know you and love you, 
who can have rich, rewarding friendships with us? And Lord, will you call us to some relationships where we're not going to get much out of it? In fact, it's going to seem like we're always giving. But we need to be in relation to somebody who we can hover around and stand by and help to protect and guide. Father, thank you for the greatest friend of all, for Jesus himself. Amen.